Let me pray. God, I thank you for how good you are. I thank you for how you are constantly at work around us and you're constantly inviting us to join you. I thank you uh, for worship and music and the joy of gathering in a room to acknowledge with my brothers and sisters just how great you are. So help us never to lose the awe and our sense of wonder and mystery that comes from reflecting and meditating upon just who you are. And so now this morning in our moments together, I ask that as you would invade this space, that we would get out of the way and you would do your business with us. I ask that we would walk out of here differently than when we walked in. And as we turn to your book and hear your words, I ask that they would penetrate deep into the very marrow of our bones. And they would convince us of how good you are. So speak to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So why pray? Like, what kind of question is that coming from the mouth of a pastor? <laughs> why pray? You know, that's a good question, even though I say so myself. But you think about it. If God is omniscient, doesn't he know everything we need? And if he's both omnipotent and he's good, won't he provide it whether we pray or not? And prayer really is a simple medium in which we communicate and commune with God. The practice of prayer is learning to set aside dedicated time to intentionally be with God, to become like Him, and to partner with Him in the world. Prayer to the Spirit is what oxygen is to the body. But why pray? Because a sovereign God who is indeed all-knowing, all-powerful and good, what he has done is he has established prayer as the means by which we receive what he has promised and help fulfill what he has ordained. We pray for help and guidance. We pray to spend time with God. We pray to praise and thank God. We pray to confess and improve. We pray to strengthen our faith. And we pray because God has asked us to. We're also driven to prayer. When things are not going right in our lives, we pray hard. Am I not? Right? When something's going wrong, we're calling out to God. And think about it. The most painful situation that you faced in your life, what did you do? You called out to God probably. And we all experience pain and agony in our lives. And it's in that moment where we usually find ourselves calling out to God for Him to intercede. When we look at the Scriptures, we see that people in the Bible... Um, they too uh, faced painful situations. I can't imagine the pain that Abraham went through when he tried to prepare his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Or about the grief that David felt when his son Absalom died. What about that guy Job, right? Everything that he went through, he lost his children, he lost even his own health. And then of course there's Jesus. Someone once said this, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. So Jesus didn't go through all that distress and trouble for himself. He had experienced all that pain and agony for your sins and my sins. 
Mark's chapter 14 and 15 describes the betrayal, abandonment. It describes the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, which is referred to as the passion, which is Latin for suffer. The theme of chapter 14, which is what the longest chapter in Mark, it's about the abandonment of Jesus. And our text today is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And before we read it, let me set up the scenario. Jesus and the disciples have celebrated the Passover meal in the upper room. And then after that, Judas left the room. Jesus then instituted what we call the Last Supper or communion. After that, it was almost, you know, between 10 and midnight. Jesus and the 11 disciples start making their way towards the garden. And that's when Jesus turns around and he looks at all of his boys and he says that, look at guys, you're going to abandon me. But after the resurrection, we're going to come together again. And of course, each of the disciples, they rebuffed Jesus and what he said to them. They only heard the negative. And this is where we find ourselves right now. They just had that conversation. Jesus is moments away from the most pivotal movement in history. Mark takes us to holy ground. And he gives us a glimpse of what Jesus went through before he went to the cross. Now, I've asked Micah Davidson to come and to read the passage for us. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now throughout Jesus' ministry, when the crowds were pressing on him, when there were thousands of people who needed to be fed, when he was discerning what the next steps he should be taking, you know what he did? He prayed. When the disciples asked him, hey, how do we pray? He taught them. And now there's a death squad coming for him. And even his closest friends are simply too exhausted to keep watch for him. But what does he do? He prays. So there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that he's alone. Where death is looming at his door. His friends were close at hand, but they were also so far away. But Jesus prayed. How did he pray? How did he pray in the garden? I don't think he was reciting the Lord's Prayer here, though perhaps that prayer brought him some comfort and connection, even in his isolation. He wasn't doing a breathing practice. He wasn't doing a meditation or a quiet uh, contemplation. 
Now, when we take a look at this passage and the corresponding passages of the gospel, we see that this was a gritty, dirty prayer. It was messy. We hear about the ugly cries, right? You know, somebody has it. Are you an ugly crier? Or you get the snot running? Well, this is a, Jesus was doing an ugly prayer. Drenched in tears and snot. Shaking inward, outward, hollows, grief of anguish. Unedited. It was raw. Have you ever been there? I think that just about everybody in this room can identify with deep sorrow on some level. At some point in our lives, most of us have felt these deep emotions. Maybe even to the point of wishing that we would die instead of suffering so much. Well, let me tell you that these feelings are human. And there's nothing sinful about any of them. Because even Jesus felt this way. And so Jesus is currently enduring incredible amounts of distress. He's open about that towards his disciples. In verse 34, he confesses to his disciples that he's grieved to the point of death. They just don't get it. For some time, he's been preparing his disciples for his death and his resurrection. And we see that earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus warns his disciples about this and how, excuse me, at the, and now that the moment is right around the corner, they still haven't clued in. In spite of the betrayal and the arrest at hand of one of his own disciples, despite of the abandonment by those who closely followed him, the humiliation of unjust trials, the ultimate verdict of crucifixion, in spite of every physical suffering or the crucifixion itself, Jesus is bearing the weight of something far worse. He's about to endure the wrath of God as he accepts the penalty for our sin of our behalf separating him from the Father. And so Jesus was troubled about being separated from the Father. And this separation is the source of Jesus' grief to the point of death. So what does he do? He turns to God in prayer. And so Jesus takes his buddies and he, he leaves the majority there and then he takes his three best buds and he begins to pray. And he's deeply distressed and troubled, as Scripture tells us. He's full of grief and anguish. anguish. Chances are he probably falls prostrate uh, in prayer. And he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, but take this cup from me. Not that I will, but what you will. And I always wonder about that. It seems so, so short, so quick, so concise, but how did it really go down? Because I wonder if Jesus actually pounded the earth. I wonder if he was howling and, and maybe pulling his hair. Was he pleading? You know, we have this concept that Jesus said he's always nice and in control. Did he have full tears and snot? Was dirt running muddy rivers down his face? Was he in the ground? Did he call out, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want it to end this way. It's too hard. I'm too scared. They're coming for me. What are they going to do to me? What's going to happen to my friends, my family, everything I worked so hard for? There's got to be another way. I don't want to die yet. Not now, not yet. Scripture says he was spent and exhausted. He was probably in a heap. He was poured out on the... He poured everything out. His entire heart 
And he finally whispers, okay, I surrender. I put my life in your hands. And unfortunately, we see that the disciples weren't able to remain awake and pray. You know, he asked them to, hey guys, watch and pray so you can actually share with me and my burden. Very critical component here. And these are the same guys who just earlier that evening just simply said, we're willing to suffer for you and given the opportunity to stand and support you, Jesus, we're going to do that. And what does he do? He comes back and he finds him sleeping. And Jesus, of course, he calls out Peter. And in these verses, Jesus addresses the struggle his disciples are experiencing. Your willingness to follow Jesus, but your weakness to follow through is the issue. And so that's why he tells them, you know, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. He knew the state of their hearts, but also the battle at work within them against temptation. Jesus knew the state of Peter's heart. You know, Peter said he was willing to do anything. However, Jesus also knew the power of temptation at work in that man's heart. And that inevitably, Peter would deny him. And yet Jesus not only encouraged his disciples to pray against temptation, but also demonstrated before them what it looks like for the flesh to be weak and yet overcome through prayer. And so then in my notes, I just had a random thought. And so here's my random thought. So often it's easier for us in our times of need to attempt to care for ourselves instead of turning to our church family for emotional and spiritual support through prayer. And yet there's power when we pray for and with one another. In verse 36, we get a glimpse of the words that Jesus communicates to the Father. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, but take this cup from me. Not what I will, but what you will. And what Jesus does here for us as he begins the most powerful example of prayer and submission to the Lord with a simple statement, everything is possible for you. And throughout scripture, we see the evidence of God doing the impossible. Jesus teaches us earlier in Mark 11, uh, truly I tell you, if anybody says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he's says will happen, it will be done for him. Jesus is fully aware of God's insurmountable power. After all, Jesus was there when he, the Father, the Holy Spirit, laid the foundations of the world in John, in Genesis, but we read that in John chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. Jesus recognizes God's authority. He appeals to the Father in his, uh, in his distress. He says, take this cup from me. And if we stopped here and Jesus' request was granted, you've got to think about this, then we would actually have no hope because Jesus would have not taken our sins upon himself and we would bear the full wrath of God for our sins. But Jesus did not end his prayer here. Theologian David Guzik said this, he said, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink from that cup. This was the source of Jesus' agony. And so we know that Jesus prayed. He said, look at if it's possible. And he wasn't praying for the Father to save him and let all the humans perish. Rather, he was praying, if it was possible, that the Father would choose some other way to accomplish the salvation of humankind. 
if it's possible. But there was no other way. And thus, eventually, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. And this shows that salvation is possible only through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that there is no other way. Not what I will, but what you will. And this sentence summarizes the earthly life of Jesus, that he was obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2.8. He was obedient right to the end. And you know, we're not able to comprehend the capacity of God's authority. We live in a world that's so anti-authority. Who are you to tell me what to do? And when it comes to the scriptures, you know, we, we, we try to make God minute and to fix, fit in our little box, and yet we're not able to comprehend the capacity of his authority. In fact, God himself speaks to this in Isaiah 55, for as heaven is higher than earth, and so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And again, here we have an exchange between the Father and the Son that brings about a paradox to light. You've got to consider these two truths about Jesus. First, Jesus was fully God. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And secondly, Jesus was fully human. Philippians 2, Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who in existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And these two truths are impossible to reconcile in our human mind. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? And yet, this paradox points us to one important reality that Jesus still surrendered to God's design for our sake. And then we have the proverbial rubber-hits-the-road moment, because after spending time in prayer, he returned to the moment that was really the source of his grief. You look at that in verse 41, and he returns the third time. So you got to imagine, Jesus doesn't go and then comes back and rebukes the disciples. He does it three times. Three times he goes and he has this gritty, messy, snotty prayer. Three times he goes and he's asking God to take this cup from him. Three times. And when he returned for the third time, his boys are still sleeping. And the mention of the third time is significant because it suggests in Scripture that their failure is complete. And so in these two verses, we see two realities at work going on here. The first is the disciples spent their time sleeping when Jesus instructed them to stay awake and to pray against temptation. And secondly, quickly thereafter, we see the results of this, that the disciples will abandon Jesus. Peter would even deny knowing him. They would all lose hope, forgetting Jesus' promise that he would indeed be crucified, but would rise from the grave three days later. And so after the third time, Jesus comes to the boys and he says, the hour has come. The hour of suffering has come. And like I said, he prayed three times if it was possible that the cup would be taken away from him. This, his words demonstrate the Father's will is revealed to him. So he says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And we notice that Jesus doesn't run away. He doesn't flee his death. Rather, he steps forward to meet his betrayer. Courage, confidence, submission. I like what Robert Stein says. He goes, it's not a weak 
effeminate Jesus of much Christian art, who goes out to meet his enemies, but the conquering Son of Man, Son of God, it is the one who is the Lord of nature, of the demons, of disease, and of death. Yet he defeats his enemies by dying for them. So here's my takeaway this morning. I've given you theology. I've given you the story. I want to give you my takeaway. And I want you to leave with this in the back of your mind. Jesus teaches us and expects us to spend time in prayer, seeking the Father's will and remaining faithful to Him. He instructs us to pray without giving up. We read that in Luke 18, 7 and 8. The discipline of praying without giving up is exactly what we see Jesus demonstrating. He brought his cares, he brought his anxiety, he remained faithful to God's will. So Jesus doesn't teach us to pray away the circumstances or hardships. Jesus teaches us to pray through. To pray through our circumstances and hardships. And Jesus tells his best friends, my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. And it's what we do with these feelings in that moment that really matters. The fact that we need each other. Scripture describes Jesus as being in this type of agony. And the first thing we see him doing is gathering together his closest friends for support. And he doesn't bring all 12 of the disciples to that remote place in the garden. He only chooses three. He chooses the closest three, Peter, James, and John. These were also the same guys who had witnessed the glory of his transfiguration. And so Peter, James, and John have witnessed Jesus' glory like nobody else had. And because of their witness, they're in the most, they really are the most prepared of all the disciples to witness now his agony. And he know, Jesus knows them in a different way than he knows the others. And so he chooses them to share in his emotional agony. He rallies them for companionship. He asks them to pray along with him. And I think this is actually a lesson for all of us. That Jesus gathers his friends and expressed his sorrow. We need friends too. Not as a substitute for God but as earthly comfort. You know, there's a delicate balance between oversharing and putting on a, a happy face and to suffer in silence. But in times of heartbreak, in times of grief and sadness, when you think about it, we need our closest friends to support us. We need to share our feelings with them, asking for support, asking for companionship, asking for prayer. We don't need to broadcast our situation to everyone we know or blast it on social media, but it, 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 it's helpful. It's necessary for us to gather our closest friends and to be honest with them. Keep watch with me and pray. Pray with me. Stay with me. Support me. See, Jesus modeled that for us. So we need each other. We also need time alone. Luke 15 said that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. And we see this happening over and over again throughout the Gospels. 
So there's a time of prayer with others and then there's a time where we have to get alone with God to speak our hearts frankly and we have to express our emotions honestly. A time that's set aside for God to hear and understand our hearts when the words don't come, when we can only groan or when we can only find ourselves crying. So let me ask you this question. Where is your Gethsemane? Is it in your garden? Your backyard? Your room? A room in the house? Is it the bathroom? Is it the basement? Is it your car? Is it a field? Is it a forest? Is it a diary that you write or speak out everything you feel? Whether it's petty or profound. Where is your Gethsemane? offer it all to God because that's prayer and that may be just the prayer that we need right now once alone Jesus falls on his knees he falls on his face he assumes this posture of humility and surrender he begs God take this cup away from me Jesus isn't necessarily asking not to suffer physically more than that he's begging God not to turn his face away from him So the disconnection from the Father is more than what Jesus can bear. Isaiah 53, He who had no sin was made sin for us. The humanity of Jesus is on full display here. He is fully man as he begs God to save him from the pending suffering that is to come. And it's a normal predictive response that Jesus is going through here. And every one of us would probably react in the same way in the same circumstance. It is how many of us have responded. At the same time, the words Jesus uses to pray are the proof that he's also fully God. And he models for us how to balance praying our true feelings and submitting to the will of God. Do you notice that feelings and submitting don't necessarily line up equally? He feels free to beg God to save him from his impending pain. Jesus also expresses his full submission to the Father's will. He begins by addressing God, Abba Father. Again, this concept of a very close relationship, it implies love, it implies trust. And he prays, if it's possible, in other words, if if you can still achieve your will and the salvation of the world without me having to go through this, you know, can we do this? And he's submitting it to the Father's will and even asked to be saved from this impending pain, yet, which is a very powerful word in the scripture, some translations say nevertheless, After begging God to take this assignment from him, he circles back to submitting to the will of the Father, and he says, it's not my will, it's yours. Be done. And make no mistake, this submission was agonizing for Jesus. Luke, the doctor, he writes and he describes for us that as Jesus prayed, he even prayed more earnestly that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And even though Jesus was fully God at this moment, his humanity made it physically and mentally difficult to submit to the will of God. So much so that we read in Luke chapter 22 that God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. So he gets up, 
returns to the three disciples. He is brought with them, finds them sleeping. They have failed him once again. And once again, it's a lesson for us. Our closest friends and family are important resources for us, especially when we're going through tough times. However, they will never replace the perfect comfort, the reliability, and the peace that only God can supply. And as humans, we fail each other all the time. So I believe our intentions may be good, but our own emotions, our priorities, our schedules, and opinions get in the way of being everything for somebody else, but only God can do that. And finally, Jesus says, Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So I need to say this. God always answers. Now it appears that God didn't answer Jesus' prayers. At the very least, it would seem that Jesus was told, No, I'm not going to stop this punishment by death. And it's true that God's will for Jesus was to die and become a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. He didn't stop that from happening, but he did answer Jesus' prayer. As I said earlier, he sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, to give him the ability to carry through the task before him. He also rescued Jesus from death. Yes, Jesus would suffer greatly and it would be painful for a time. But he didn't allow Jesus to stay dead. He brought him back to life and took him to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And thankfully for our sakes and for all of humanity, Jesus' prayer was answered in the perfect will of our sovereign God. Because of Jesus, because of his obedience to the will of the Father, we have a relationship with Christ today. I love what Hebrews 5, 7 says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You know, there was an old song that I remember singing in church as a kid. As a matter of fact, I was going through, a, I don't know if our staff heard some of the music I was playing, but I was finding some old 80s music and other songs. And of course it came to mind, I, you know, I love Spotify because something pops into your head and you just search it and see what happens. And I remember singing this song in church as a kid. And it was sort of going through my head all week. It's maybe some of you will know, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. How many... How many remember that hymn? Yeah. There's a few of your hands. Others, others of you are going, what is he talking about? But sometimes it's easier said than done, am I right? And that's why I absolutely love this account of Jesus in the garden. It shows me the humanity of Jesus in his agony and trusting and obeying the Father. It shows me that it's okay to struggle and it's okay for us to plead with God. It shows me that trusting God is hard work and it won't always come easy. It shows me that trusting and obeying is between me and God and no one else can do the hard work for me. And I see that even though I may not understand in the moment, but God 
Listen carefully. God has a plan. Even when he answers my prayers differently than the way that I hoped, his plan is always the best. And so let's take this example from Jesus' life. Let's worship him for how he trusted and obeyed the Father so that we could be saved and have a relationship with him forever. Let's continue to work on our own trust issues as we work on trusting and obeying him in our lives, even when we don't understand, because it's really our only hope. It's a heavy topic, but it's a necessary topic, this one of prayer. But I want us to do something that is a reminder for us that we're not on this journey alone. And so this is what we're going to do. Now, before anybody moves, just let me explain it, and then everybody will be in a better headspace. And no, it's not going to be crazy. Everybody brings their own baggage through those doors every Sunday. You go to the crosses. Some of you just internalize it. You just keep it. And we just heard how important it was for even the Son of God to just have some friends around him who cared. And so today we're going to, to lay hands on one another as a symbol of connectedness and a reminder that we are not on this journey of life alone. And this is how we're going to do it. In a few seconds, I'm going to invite those who want to to sit down. But if your load is heavy, if your heart hurts, if your requests are urgent, I'm going to invite you to sit down just right where you're at. And the rest of us, We'll place our hands on your shoulder. We'll turn around, or maybe you're in front of us, or maybe beside you. And all we're going to do, we're not going to ask you anything. All we're going to do is we're going to pray for you. That's it. So if somebody's going to be sitting in front of you or beside you, all I'm asking is the rest of us. So make sure that nobody is sitting without a hand on those shoulders and that we pray together. So today, I invite you to sit down. If your load is heavy, if your heart hurts, if your requests are urgent, and you need an answer from God. Thank you. Thank you. There's people sitting down all over. Just take a look. Take a look and see who's sitting. Let's respond as brothers and sisters in a family. Make sure that there's a hand on them. If they're in front of you, if they're beside you, you don't need to know what they're going. They, they know. They and God know what's going on. This is a spiritual community. We are unapologetically Christian. We are unapologetically tied into this Holy Spirit of God. We unapologetically believe that God not only answers prayers, but does miracles. And there are some people who are sitting that need a miracle touch from God in their life today. So pray for them. Father, I thank you for the person on my left and I thank you for the person on my right. I thank you that you have brought them into my life today. And so God, today, as I stand before a community, I pray a blessing on all these on stage, but also those in front of me. And my prayer is that they will sense your presence in a powerful way. Because, Father, there are those days where we hurt inside and our faith is weak. 
And maybe it is today for those of us who are sitting where we hide our faces behind masks so that people will not see their hurt. So God, I ask that you'd give us the courage to remove the mask. Give us the ability to be honest and transparent with those that you have placed in our lives. And God, may we all learn to carry each other's burdens with joy, with love, and with tenderness. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now stand with me because in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So if you want a blessing before you go, here it is. God, as we leave this place this morning, may the lips that have sung your praises always speak the truth in love. May the ears that have heard your word be shut to what is evil. May the feet that brought us to this place of prayer always walk in your ways. And now may God give you light to guide, courage to support, love to unite, now and always. Go into the world in peace to love and serve the Lord. Now be blessed. We'll see you next week. Go and live the church. Amen.